Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome back to Administrative Static. And uh, last week, Mark and I briefly discussed the fact that Walmart had uh, moved to dis- dismiss a case by the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, against it. And they had taken the, uh, the correct, but I think very bold uh, uh, view that the FTC didn't have any power to bring this action against them. And they defended against the action and said, you know, we didn't do any of this stuff in any way. You're not even going after the bad guys and all this stuff. So Mark and I discussed it last week, but then we took what for NCLA is a, a rare step in putting in a um, amicus brief in the district court. Before the district court in Walmart, we moved uh, and asked, say, can we put in a brief? Because this is very important stuff. And the, and the Professor Hamburger uh, joined in the brief and is on it. Um, and as is Greg Dolan and Brian Rosner and Mark and myself. And uh, the argument in this, I think, is very clever, uh, Mark, which is that Humphrey's executor is wrongly decided and must be followed. And, <laughs> and that's right. A, there is a kind of jujitsu going on in our, in our amicus brief. But Humphrey's executor is a case from what I would say that the dawn of the most powerful period of administrative state favorable law. It's from 1935. And the question was whether the FTC, what, what was the FTC? Could it constitutionally function? And the Supreme Court in 1935 said, well, it really doesn't have executive power and it's really not judicial. It, it, it's, it's sort of a administering things and doing investigations but you know we don't we don't think that these uh commissioners all have to be appointed by the president removal by the president uh removal by the president is really it and um so this is a supreme court case which they're tough to get around <laughs> if you want <laughs> if you want to if you want to work uh, so so the FTC has has uh, well. well and to be clear, this is this is the precedent that is the foundation of much of the administrative state as we know it today, right? I mean, Humphrey's executor is the case that that adherents of uh, administrative statists, as I like to call them, John. Uh, this is the case that undergirds much of what they do. That says that these independent agencies uh, can exist outside of of the president's uh, control. So. Uh, uh, it's a big deal case. It's not some sort of obscure case from the 1930s. That's exactly correct, and and it's and it's uh, caused a lot of trouble, um, and and ruin in a lot of areas because nobody knows who's in charge of anything because the, pre- the the FTC does something and the president could say, well, you know, I couldn't remove any of those guys. Some are, and uh, so so what's happened is there's five commissioners. And the FTC's power has just accumulated since 1935. And what they did in this case is what they do in a lot of cases. 
they, uh, especially now, because as, as you may remember in AMG, which is a case we, we uh, did amicus briefs on and, and were following very closely for 40 years, they had said that they could get disgorgement amounts in the millions and even billions of dollars under a provision of the FTC Act that said they could get injunctions in federal court. So they go in federal court and say, oh, we want an injunction and we want all their money. And, and uh, it took 40 years for the Supreme Court to catch up to this and say, the statute says injunction and an injunction isn't disgorgement. That is a simple proposition of law. It shouldn't have taken 40 years, but it did because of these administrative, uh, oh, let the administrative agencies do what they want idea was so prevalent. So in any event, so just like in AMG here, They've just grown in power. And so our argument was that, hey, um, Humphrey's executor has to be reconsidered, but you district court can't do it. I mean, it's kind of a big ass, Mark, to tell the district court to uh, ignore Supreme Court precedent. And I think it would, the whole structure collapses if you do that. So I uh, can't do that. Right. And Walmart didn't do that. And we didn't do that. We, we, we said you can recognize that it's erroneously decided, but you still have to follow it. And so the argument there is that executive power can't be exercised by someone who's not removable by the president, because then you don't have any responsibility in our whole system. And, and the Constitution gives him the executive power, it vests solely in him. So uh, and removal is completely unqualified. It, it's it's a it's a historical and constitutional artifact that the uh, Congress, the first Congress, uh, and when they set up the Constitution, they said that all uh, off federal officers have to be appointed by the president with the advice and consent of the Senate. And that's why we have all this confirmation. So his appointment power is not unfettered, but his removal power is unfettered because they've never, the Constitution doesn't say anything that to remove somebody, you have to have the advice of the Senate. And, and in fact, this was this is what happened uh, when um, Johnson was uh, was impeached in the 18th. So they said, you've, re you've removed the wrong guy. We like that guy. And and the failure of the Johnson in impeachment cemented this, I think, um, this removal power historically. I, I think it was already in the Constitution, but the political attempt to get rid of that failed. So uh, in any event, so we've also argued that um, this is execution of the law. I mean, Mark, how did they how did they get away all these years with saying that the, all these cases enforcing the FTC Act were not execution of the law? I mean, what else would it be? Yeah, I mean, it, it pretty clearly is. I mean, I, I think the reason it's in such stark relief here is because FTC, as that has to do under the statute, it approached the Department of Justice and initially encouraged the Department of Justice to bring the case. And the Department of Justice declined because it's it's a garbage case that should never be brought. and. I think the fact that the FTC is going ahead anyway under the current leadership over uh, at the FTC, Chairman Khan and so forth, uh, I, I think that they they're really hoist by their own petard here because they're 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 pushing forward on something where they're at their weakest possible sort of claim to power, and yet they're 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 pushing the envelope there, and I think that it's going to cost them because I I strongly suspect that if uh, if Judge Shaw who, uh, who, by the way, was uh, was uh, one year ahead of me in law school at the University of Chicago, but I did not I did not know him. I just happened to to notice that, but I, I'm sure we must have friends in common. Uh, but 
but I, I noticed that he clerked for Judge Zagel, who was another Chicago alum who people think very highly of. So if he's, and I don't know if he's cut from the same cloth as Judge Zagel, but if he is, he's not the kind of person who's going to lightly dismiss a binding Supreme Court precedent like Humphreys saying, hey, you can't exercise executive power, uh, FTC. And as you say, John, it's clearly executive power. If you're, if you're, if you're stepping in and doing something that the Department of Justice would otherwise be doing, then it's clearly an executive kind of authority that's that's being brought to bear. And, you know, I guess the FTC has mostly done injunctions or they haven't sought monetary exactly. relief as often, but it's- And it's here's really why, negative. Mark. Let me, let me tell everyone why. It's because of AMG. They were doing this extra constitutionally and extra lawfully under it until AMG stopped them. So now they have to use Section 19 and go and refer this stuff to justice. And when justice says no, then bring it themselves. That's what's going on here. They want to get the money. And, oh, I see uh, what you're saying is that they were able to do it through their internal proceedings. Correct. Which, which is, which, correct. you know, I think is executive power too, by the way, but, but at least there's, there's an arguable uh, case there and, and precedent suggesting that as long as they're in their internal proceedings, that that's, I guess, quasi judicial rather than executive is the, so is exactly. The so they, so they, they're doing this because of AMG and that's why they're kind of doing so often, I believe. And, and I'll tell you something, worse about all this. So then the Justice Department turns down, it comes back to them and they go forward. Well, you know, they're going to, they're going to have problems with that. But the other thing here is, is that the, um, we, we argue, and I think this is the real jujitsu here. We argue that the FTC's action against Walmart is unconstitutional because Humphrey bars the agency from exercising executive power, which is true. So we go through it and then we want the judge to say, this is the exercise of executive power and it isn't it doesn't fall within the facts of humphrey's executor so he can say he doesn't breach humphrey's executor by saying this is completely different and well, he doesn't he doesn't have to say that what the ftc did in humphrey's executor was also executive power he doesn't have correct. to say that the case was factually mistaken it's correct. not it's not just a question of having to follow the law but he doesn't have to take issue with the facts of humphrey's executor either in order to follow it in this case. And and I think that's I think that's a very strong argument. And I and I also I I do hope that he he uh, he looks at it that way, because the one thing is, you know, Walmart is a, a big player in, in the they didn't they didn't. I always complain the FTC picks on the small guys and gets its precedent from the small folks first before it does anything big. And and here they they picked on the they picked on a big big deal and they did it on a weak case and you as you said you may you may live to regret it and and it may be you know the the chairwoman of the of the FTC right now is very young and not a litigator and uh i i think that there are some prudential concerns that mm-hmm. seem to be alien to to what they're doing right now you might be a little out over her skis you might say I, I'm, I'm thinking that that perhaps because even if I wanted this, even if I believed in this theory, it's not how I build the case. You see, so I think this is a good brief. I think it was very very smart, uh, and, and I know it's your decision, Mark. So I shouldn't, uh, but but I think it was a very good case to get in early because this this is one to watch. I think, uh, yeah, I agree with you. I think it is it is one to watch. It's it's interesting. I I think that. Uh, I think that the FTC is is the dog that's caught the car and doesn't know what to do, uh, maybe uh, now. Uh, and they, they, they should have just let this one drive on by. Uh, but uh, 
but they didn't. And now, you know, we'll see, we'll see what happens. I, I think, uh, I think, as you say, John, it's a case worth watching. I think it's a case where Humphrey's executor will be upheld. We'll have to wait another day for Humphrey's executor. Welcome back to Administrative Static with John Vecchioni and Mark Chenoweth. I, uh, I, John, I'm, I'm somewhat dismayed at uh, something that happened in the U.S. Supreme Court uh, this week. Uh, we have been following the case of Yeshiva University et al., the YU Pride Alliance uh, et al. And the issue in this case is whether or not an Orthodox Jewish university has to recognize a, uh, a gay and lesbian organization on the campus, which the uh, university presumably thinks is not uh, uh, consistent with the orthodox teachings of, of Judaism. That is, they may be perfectly happy to have those students on campus. May, they may be perfectly happy to have those students exercise their, their free speech rights on campus and, and talk about these topics and so forth. But the university as an entity doesn't want to recognize or be forced to recognize as a legitimate student group, something that is at odds with the the teachings of Orthodox Judaism. And you would think, John, that this would be a sort of open and shut First Amendment case that, that you know, of, of, of all the sort of university cases that I've seen in the last uh, 20 years, this is pretty close to, a, to the, the, the starkest factual pattern that I can think of, where the university is is being asked by the, the state courts of New York, it appears, to do something that's directly contradictory to the religious teachings of that uh, of that faith. And you would think that there would be a pretty strong uh, First Amendment uh, right there, but that's not exactly what the case has turned on, because the case came up to the Supreme Court on its. Uh, uh, I guess you'd say this was the shadow docket, wouldn't you, John? Yes, they believe me. If it had come out the other way, we'd be hearing all how the shadow docket has ruined the world. <laughs> right, right. So, uh, the but it came up from a, a there was a, a denial from the ability to file a stay at the uh, at the New York Court of Appeals, which is the highest uh, court in New York. And so it came up to the to the U.S. Supreme Court asking for essentially a stay of this order pending uh, hearing on. The merits, and initially it was ref uh, it was in front of Justice Sotomayor because she is the Circuit Justice who oversees uh, the Second Circuit, which includes New York State, and she uh, issued a, a temporary stay uh, pending uh, resolution or or hearing by the rest of the members uh, of the Supreme Court. And you know, I think we had taken that initially as a good sign, John, that even Sotomayor saw that this appeared to be a, a pretty blatant. A violation of of the First Amendment, uh, or, or at least one that would that, that she uh, maybe made the judgment that a majority of her colleagues might might not have difficulty uh, on the merits with this one. But that yeah. wasn't to be the case because uh, 
you know, not, not long after uh, she put this temporary uh, ruling into effect, all nine justices uh, voted and five of the nine justices uh, refused to uh, grant the stay. Uh, and I, you know, I, it seems like what's going on here is that the majority of the Supreme Court wants to give the the New York courts more of a chance uh, to weigh uh, to weigh in on this. That that the uh, uh, majority holds out the possibility that the Court of Appeals might issue a stay if if even more process uh, is done here, and that and the Supreme Court, at least under Chief Justice Roberts. Uh, doesn't like to assert plenary review over the merits of a claim until the lower courts have have addressed the merits or at least uh, have had uh, a little bit more of an opportunity uh, to do so. And so you you might say that the case is more about finality than it is about the merits. And so there was a headline, I think, in Law 360 today, John, that said <laughs> something along the lines of Supreme Court orders Yeshiva University to recognize you know, gay pride group. That is That is just factually wrong and frankly embarrassing that Law 360 would write a headline like that because well, that's not what the court held. And I just add, because I have found the reporters at Law 360 pretty straight, straightforward given the current world, but you do not get to pick your headlines when you write an article. I just want everyone <laughs> to know that. And so, right, but the, the other thing here, Mark, is, is that they do love procedure and there's also federalism requirements. And I... I my problem is I don't know if the school will have to follow the order before they can make these emergency appeals, because I'm going to differ with Alito just a little bit in this. He says, I doubt they'll get any relief in the New York state courts. I'm not so sure about that. I, I think that the Court of Appeals of New York uh, doesn't always just go ideologically because because, it, as I always say, it's a commercial place. Words have meaning to them. I mean, they did not they did not create same-sex marriage from the marriage laws. They said, nope, it's got to be the legislature. I am not, and they do, they have taken certain uh, religious liberties uh, seriously. So I'm not sure he's right that they won't get it. What, I, what I'm really, uh, my problem is I don't know whether they'll get it before they have to uh, violate their religious beliefs. That's the problem. And I've seen different reporting on that, John. I've seen that the deadline already passed for groups to register for the semester, and so that so that this group can be denied just on that basis until the spring semester. And so there may be time uh, for the courts to to do a little bit more. That essentially Sotomayor's temporary stay uh, pushed it pushed it past the relevant deadline, and so that there may be uh, there may be some breathing space. And then I've seen reporting the other direction. Obviously, Law Three Hundred and Sixty suggesting that they are going to have to recognize. Uh, the group. So I, I don't know. Uh, sorry, I can't give and, and more a, certainty a, to our audience on that point. I, I will also say this. I do not believe this would have happened to any other organization in New York. I mean, I really think that there is some kind of uh, prejudice going on. I never say this about judges, but I think there's something going on here because I don't even think they do this to a Catholic school. I don't think they do it to a um, to a Muslim school, I, I think this was this was a real outlier, and there is some sort of something going on in New York because the New York Times is also publishing all these things about how these Orthodox schools don't have high SAT scores or something. I mean, there there seems to be a yeah, full but this court is Yeshiva track. University. This isn't I, some oh uh, I know. You know this isn't some small secondary school that that might be outside no, the mainstream. This no is, question, 
but there is something this going is on like in the, Europe right now. This is like the Notre Dame of, uh, <laughs> uh, or the BYU of, uh, of Jewish universities in the U.S., isn't it? I mean, that's my, that's, yeah. I mean, maybe Brandeis would, would take issue with that. I, I think know. that's true. I think that's true. So, yeah, so we'll see what happens. But, but Mark, this procedural, the, the, the real problem here is, is that when the judge doesn't stay his own order on something so controversial and so out there, that's another thing. Look at look at right here in D.C. on the uh, on the uh, eviction moratorium. It was a huge deal. And Dabney Fruit, what did she do? We don't like it, but she stayed her ruling until it could be decided by the higher ups. Right. Because it was, uh, in her view, uh, a very, very big decision, whether she thought she could be overturned or not. But what what would be the real harm by waiting two or three months, um, given that. And, and preserving the status quo, that's what stays are for. Keep the status quo until it's all settled. So I really think that this was a, a terrible decision, of not only uh, legally, but prudentially. Well, and let's be clear about which four justices uh, it is that that uh, dissented here. So it was Alito, it was Thomas, it was Barrett, and it was Gorsuch. So that means that yet again, Chief Justice Roberts and my favorite justice, Brett Kavanaugh, were not willing uh, to stand in the breach and stop something unlawful from happening. And I don't understand, and John, you're just going to have to explain it to me, I do not understand what is so difficult for these two justices about preserving the status quo until until the legal status of something can be resolved, whether it's the the eviction moratorium where Kavanaugh cavilled or, or caved or whether it's this, it's just over and over and over again. There's a pattern here of being willing to allow extreme decisions from lower courts to continue to be in effect for longer periods of time. And it's that kind of lack of backbone, I think, that creates some of the problems. In other words, if the court were more consistently stopping this kind of thing from happening, it wouldn't have to stop it from happening very often because the lower judges, lower court judges would get the message, oh, we can't get away with these kinds of shenanigans, and then they wouldn't do it. But instead, you have a court that is consistently unwilling to discipline the lower courts at early stages. And as a result, you're getting more and more and more adventuresome decisions from lower court uh, judges on things like this. Now, and I, and real, real people's civil liberties are violated as a result of that. that that's true, but I, I wouldn't call the state courts lower courts. I, in other words, if this was a district court, I, I probably would I'd probably be with you. But this is a state court, and the state courts are slightly different, and, and they like to stay out of it until everything's done. And those two, those two justices also like to, um, like to see if the problem goes away, and they don't like showing that they've decided an issue before it gets to the merits. Now, and, and there is an appeal. I mean, there is the issue here of appeal. We, we cited Skokie, which I think was very apt and I think was the correct thing to cite. But it's in any of these. these Can you say more about that, John? Oh, yeah. So um, the, the Nazis, uh, the Illinois Nazis, just like in um, just just like Jake and Elwood hated, uh, were um, wanted to march in Skokie, which was a, a place where a lot of um, Holocaust survivors lived. And they were they the question was whether they were going to be stopped from marching when they had permits and all this. And the Supreme Court issued a stay of the order preventing them from marching. 
um, because of their First Amendment rights were violated. And they didn't make them go all the way up to the Illinois Supreme Court. And Alito mentions this. So there is precedent to, to stop this, but that was a long time ago. And I think the appellate courts have gotten stingier since the 1970s in doing this. There's one thing about uh, a conservative or originalist courts that I think is creates a pincer. And that's this. They become less likely to just grab uh, cases that they can. Uh, and, and I see this in the Fifth Circuit all the time. They, they will use procedure not to do stuff. Um, and that's what's happening here. Yeah, I, I agree with you. They're they're trying they're trying to to let the lower courts do their work uh, for them. We'll see how that pans out. Thanks for being with us on Administrative Static.